so much, so much to do. But when my traveling is over, I'll be back with interest. I'll be back with interest. It seems unfair to leave you and sell myself. This is podcast number 341, entitled The Chinese Prime Minister. And you've just heard Pay You Back With Interest by the Hollies from 1966, one of the great anthems by that remarkable group. And it touches on the theme that is on my mind. It's been a few months since I've uh, recorded a podcast, and I've been thinking a lot about the... um, the sudden fact of death in actuality, not in principle or in abstraction or in possibility or in horror movies or in uh, all the different ways that people talk about the onset of mortality, but the actual fact of it, because I'm confronted with it, I'm watching it, I'm seeing it in front of me. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about um, this uh, question uh, of, you might call it specific or concrete preparation for death that is... Um, actually visceral and uh, not, uh, you know, like The Sentinel, which is a wonderful movie from the 70s, or which I admire, or any uh, number of other possible sort of therapies towards it, but rather the actual, the actual onset of real physical death. Now, that sounds like a downer, and it's going to end up as a Christmas podcast. This is sort of funny, but it is going to, because I have a, a kind of positive word I hope to, um, to sort of inculcate or approach as I, as I speak these words. The um, power of the Holly's anthem, Pay You Back With Interest, is that the speaker is about to leave uh, someone and go on and prosecute his own life and wander and do what he wants to do, but he loves her and he remembers uh, the time he's had with her and he, uh, he, he says, one day when my wandering days are over, I'll pay you back with interest. I'll return and I'll give you more than I even took. Now, you know that's never going to happen. Uh, it is a... It is a kind of a, oh, he's, uh, it sounds good. Um, it sounds good to him to be able to tell her that he's going to pay her back for the loss that he is um, prosecuted on her uh, and is going to pay her back with um, some blessing, some additional. She's going to be ultimately repaid for her sorrow and her loss. And um, I would translate it differently. He's going to pay 
life back with interest. He's done a he's done a bad thing. He's he's about to do a selfish thing, a normal but selfish thing, and uh, he he he's he, he is in fact this is an indicative, um, not a moralistic uh, statement or a or a, an excuse. He's actually going to find that he's going to pay her back with with the cost uh he's going to live to regret it because the cost is such it's going to be interest involved is he won't be able to just say well i'm let's just minimize let's just cut our losses here he's going to be required what we today call accountable he's going to be required to to uh make up this um sin that he has uh, inflicted and uh, the point about that is that life nothing that you've done or you've been part of really escapes you um it 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 is uh i say this now as a 70 year old and i'm often talk to people who are more like in their 40s or 50s or hopefully younger uh, but um it's uh, clear that uh you 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 get to a point and you your life is kind of a thing it's sort of a thing that you've you lived it's an object really not a subject at a certain point it becomes an object a thing it's like the anvils that are strapped or chained to the feet of the poor purgatorial sufferers at the beginning of Christmas Carol when Scrooge and Marley see the rest of the world who had died unprepared, um, lassoed to, chained to, enthralled to um, the anvil of their past mistakes or their past sorrows or whatever you want to call it, and their grievances. And uh, these are, uh, they're skating outside the window in a Christmas uh, snowy setting. And it's really true. Because your uh, things that um, you know you sort of tossed off really do come back to you. That's the way we're built. It's a kind of a uh, you could almost call it a physiological thing. We're built to think about these things. I'm sure you find this in your dreams. Suddenly, someone pops up in a dream, or some. Um, situation or context comes up that you haven't thought about forever, or you see a play or watch a movie or a television show or hear a song and something comes into your mind. These things never leave, whatever they may be. And I was recently um, seeing with Mary an absolutely brilliant movie from the... uh, 1947, entitled A Woman's Vengeance. I was interested in it because, having never seen it, I didn't realize that Aldous Huxley had written the complete script for a Hollywood movie with major stars, uh, Charles Boyer and Jessica Tandy and a couple of others. I'd never realized that he was responsible. And he took a short story he'd written before he had a kind of uh, Eastern uh, conversion with Christian elements, and he then rewrote it as a movie in full, and he got full ability and permission to write it as he saw it, and he changed the ending. He changed it dramatically, but at one point the main figure who's about to be executed for a crime he did not commit uh, gives a kind of soliloquy in the movie. This is not in the story, which is called The Geoconda Smile. It's in the movie called A Woman's Vengeance, and he says, um, you have to listen quite carefully, but he says in a kind of soliloquy in the death chamber the night before he's to be hanged, life has to be lived forward, he says, but it can only be understood backwards. That's Aldous Huxley's writing. Life has to be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards. And I really ask you to consider your life backwards. Now, if you're, you know, just about any normal age, you're, as I said in that book I wrote about the boomer, uh, the, the boomer handbook to peace, um, the second third of life 
is sort of a thing. Uh, it's a thing. And people in the third third of life tend to still want to be in the second third. That's why we often say that people we love and know in their 70s are still traveling and acting and um, interacting as if they were 45 when they're in fact 75. And, and it's a, it's not a good thing. I, I, I want to make a value judgment. It's not a good thing to live your second third of life in the context of your third physical third of life, which is just because your body begins to... I mean, good Lord, if you could see the number of uh, of ailments that this uh, speaker has right now on almost every front. It is such a... It's a kind of a sick joke, but it's true. Everything is beginning to go to pot. And anyone who's any age above a certain uh, age will tell you everything starts to go to pot. And all of a sudden, my gosh, I can't hear, I can't see, I can't do this, I can't do that. And um, that's a signal that we're supposed to... Um, get things together. Now, I want to, um, I was jarred recently, uh, recently two people that I know really well, that I've known for a very long time, died suddenly. Um, they, that is to say, to all intents and purposes, they, they quote, died suddenly. That's the new thing. So-and-so, age 27, died suddenly. That usually means they took their own life. But in this case... <clears throat> Um, a very prominent, I mean, a very fine physician died in his sleep at a much younger age than I because of an undiagnosed ailment and a very gifted man and a man of wonderful practice uh, in uh, in cardiology. And then another uh, a, a gal that I knew from the time I was like 12 uh, has, quote, died suddenly. And what was so striking in the obit, uh, especially of the latter, was the family was at a total loss. No church service, no words of comfort, no sense of God's presence or God's action or anything, the future, heaven, uh, pure, total shock. It was an obit somewhere that was written, obviously, by either her husband or a grown child. And the obit was was a shock because it was clear that this family evinced no anchor, no... um, no comfort, no solicitude, no hope, no interpretation. It was a total and complete disaster. And I thought to myself, I, I knew this person once very well, long, long ago. And I thought to myself, gosh, if only I wish I'd been been there. She was a wonderful person. I mean, in her teens, she was a terrific human being. And um, if only I'd been I just wish I were there uh, to offer some words of Christian comfort, but there's nothing. And uh, I was uh, then, this is going somewhere, believe me, I was then motivated. What have I said so far? I've talked about the, you, you, you pay your life back with interest. You don't get away with anything. It all comes back and things that you did wrong or things that upset you or have damaged you and scarred you, you, you don't shake them. They, they return unless they're dealt with. They have to be dealt with. If they're not, you take them with you. And uh, the uh, I saw this uh, dramatically, as I said, in the case of some people recently. Actually, there are three who have uh, died suddenly, who are my age, but were expected to live either forever or at least 15 years longer. And then uh, the thought, I suddenly had this thought, golly, you need to read Enid Bagnold. <laughs> oh, oh, God, what is Paul's all doing now? Enid Bagnold, that's B as in boy, A-G-N-O-L-D, was a uh, rather aristocratic English lady who wrote in the 
30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, and she became celebrated because she wrote National Velvet, which was a, a, a wonderful book for teenagers, especially teenage girls, about a girl and her horse, and it was made into a terrific movie with Liz Taylor and Mickey Rooney. I recommend it. And then she wrote something called The Chalk Garden about her... They were always about herself in some way, in which sort of a middle-aged um, divorced lady... Uh, I can't remember if she's a widow or not. She has to come to terms with an extremely difficult granddaughter, a very challenging daughter, and a butler who kind of saves her, her, <laughs> saves her from terrible mistakes, and also a governess who, played by Deborah Carr in the movies, who helps very much uh, helps uh, this middle-aged woman to find herself after a lifetime of uh, loss and regret, especially with her grown children. It's fabulous. But what I thought, I was, I, it's not not those. I would, those I knew. I wanted to go to see Enid Bagnold's plays, which actually had Catherine Hepburn and Margaret Leighton in them about old women. She wrote a play in 1964. It was a success and called The Chinese Prime Minister. And then in 1960, she wrote a play right near the end of her life. Uh, uh, called, uh, wait a minute, not 1960. She wrote that more like in 1970. But in any event, the Chinese prime minister and a play called A Matter of Gravity about a dying old impossible woman. And the two heroines, who probably are the writer to some extent, are these very theatrical um, characters. They're older, sort of upper-class English ladies who are sort of characters. And... Um, but both of them, in each case, the Chinese prime minister, I know this may sound obscure, but you can easily go find them. They're, she was, this is not a, was not done in a dungeon. She was once a, a well-known writer. She wrote um, A Matter of Gravity and the earlier play about elderly ladies who, in fact, are waking up to their mortality, are taking statistics of their life as it was. That is to say, they're, they're actually studying and having a chance to look at all their relationships prior to age 70, or in one case, age more like 80, and are then uh, almost compulsively asking questions of eternal life. Is there such a thing beyond death? What is there beyond this? They're both kind of detaching at the end. In the case of the Chinese ambassador, ambassador, she, the lady, the theatrical lady who's just turned 70, receives visits from her three adult children. They discuss being a grandmother, uh, and uh, it's not, you know, their desire to impose the role of grandmother on this theatrical impossible, but rather touchingly unsuperficial woman. Um, she refuses to be imposed upon at this age. She says, now I, I have to do something different. And then her former husband, from whom she is divorced, who's a character and a quite wonderful man in certain ways, comes and basically they reconcile after they've had a terrible time in their lives uh, of um, unreconciled um, marital discord. And But he finally leaves, and she's left alone with her butler, and she now realizes that the only thing she has to do is is decide what's next, especially after death. And her butler, whose name is Bent, B as in boy, E-N-T, dies on her and rises from the dead. I'm not kidding. Uh, her butler, named Bent, dies 
off stage and then comes back, literally comes back from the dead and brings her a new hope of possibility. It's deeply Christianized. She was a member of the Church of England, but she was not anything like a, an explicit Christian. It was not part of her, her output at all. Um, but um, she has this, she does reference Christianity, but she has this amazing experience of confronting her resurrected butler, who then encourages her to live a life of newness and freshness in her 70s. Now, in um, uh, A Matter of Gravity, she's older than this, and she's sort of in an old people's home almost, or no, actually she's in her house, her old husband's house, she's a widow, um, big old house with a woman looking after who is gay, and um, not at all fun to be with, but as the heroine of the play receives visits in this case from her son and from I think um, a, a girlfriend of her son's and from whom she's estranged and a couple of other people she in the same way as in the Chinese prime minister she realizes she has to find something beyond the summary of her rather mistaken um, life and her gay housekeeper or cook levitates all of, off stage. All of a sudden, her gay—I um, say gay because that's emphasized in the rather visionary um, prognosticative play, *A Matter of Gravity*. Her um, cook levitates twice and shows her that there is much more than we understand. Her, points her to the fact that there's something much bigger, uh, beyond supernatural. Points her to the sort of Paula White dimension. And uh, the, the woman decides on the basis of that, she and the cook move into an old people's, a retirement community, where there's a sense of real buoyancy that this old lady is going to find some kind of new life through the, not through the lesbianism of her cook, but through the supernatural natural conduit uh, element of her cook. And it is amazing. Now, why I just wanted to... I found those plays again. Thank God I have them. And uh, reread them. And I'd like to read them to you, but I won't. But I'd like you to read the, the Chinese Prime Minister. It's about the rebirth of hope based upon the, you might call it, the active abreaction of uh, issues and irresolved uh, conflicts, losses, and troubles in earlier life with a kind of happy ending in each case, one based on the resurrection concretely from the dead of a butler who's a character and um, in the latter case of the um, supernatural giftedness of her cook. Now, um, that is really what I wanted to say. And what she does is she's able, the playwright, in these two older ladies, to for each of the characters to kind of wrap up their second third of life. You might say, put it in a package, tie it up, and then kind of let it, th th throw it away. Um, it, it, th it's gone. And she's able to live just as um, Aldous Huxley in A Woman's Vengeance, a movie I heartily recommend. It's uh, Denouement is actively important, uh, philosophically, metaphysically, and in my opinion, providentially. Life has to be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards. And I wanted to give that to you. And finally, as a kind of Christmas gift, I dedicate this podcast to the Reverend Brent White in Tacoa, Georgia. Brent is a remarkably um, Catholic uh, personality. That is to say, he's a Methodist minister, but he's, his Catholic interests, by that I mean his large and wide interests, uh, allow him to go down many, many avenues of interest. And he's currently um, 
sharing with me his sort of discovery of Los Straitjackets Christmas tracks. And the Christmas tracks by Los Straitjackets, this sort of California surf sci-fi band that is not active at this moment, but was active until very recently and may well be again, and whom... Uh, David Zoll and I have seen in person, and I saw with Nick Kershaw, and I not Nick Kershaw with the other guy, and um, I have also uh, seen them alone once in Washington. They're a remarkable band, but they had a thing about Christmas, and uh, they absolutely adored Christmas. And Brent has has uh, has uh, found again their Christmas tracks, and I'm going to conclude this podcast for which I feel buoyancy. I feel, you know, I do identify with the character in the Chinese Prime Minister little bit with a uh, matter of gravity and uh, certainly did identify with um, the uh, singer of the song pay you back with interest pay life back with interest I now believe that we have something very positive and plus in the pop version of uh, of a Christmas uh, song entitled Christmas Weekend I've often toyed with the idea of writing it down as something I'd like to have played at my uh, funeral and um, I uh, want to play it for you. It's one of the most upbeat um, rockabilly cotton candy singles of all time, in my opinion. And I've often thought it would be a good uh, good postlude as people leave um, the funeral service that I one day will have. Love you so much. Merry Christmas and God bless.